same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognising him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, Are you the only one living in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. And they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is now the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things, and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us. For it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road, and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke bread. Just a brief meditation as we bring this day to an end on what it means to follow Christ in an urban world. And I want to begin by just going back to Nairobi, to which we made reference uh, a few moments ago, and just share with you one or two uh, aspects of what I discovered concerning that city while I was there. Uh, you may know that uh, Nairobi owes its existence to British colonial rule, it did not exist, there was in fact nothing on the site before the British arrived. Uh, the British had um, brought a very large contingent of Indians from India to East Africa in order to build a railway that would go from the coast of East Africa up into the heart of the continent. It began in Mombasa on the coast 
and it was uh, intended that it would end in Kampala. And Nairobi, or what is now known as Nairobi, was a very convenient stopping point on the route of that railway. Uh, It was known, the name indicates that it was known previously by the Maasai people uh, as the place of cooling waters. It's a name that now sounds rather tragically ironic because there are so many parts of the city that uh, have no cooling waters and in fact have no waters at all. And as in so many cities in the southern hemisphere, what water there is is polluted uh, uh, and uh, extremely difficult to access. And uh, the station, the halt that was built in what we now know as Nairobi, became the foundation for what is now the city of Nairobi. Uh, It was a great shock to me to uh, look at the history of Nairobi and uh, discover some of the the, the dark sides of the history of the city. Uh, Although it's uh, close to the heart of Africa, Africans were not allowed to enter the city unless they had passes uh, that guaranteed that they had work for Europeans within the city in its early days. Uh, And even then, even if there were passes that had been granted, they could be expelled from the city if they were not dressed appropriately. Uh, I have always thought of the problem of apartheid as essentially a South African problem. And it's very easy to uh, imagine that the the, the responsibility for that lay largely with, with people of Dutch origin. And it was a shock for me to realise that that within the British Empire there was this heritage of what amounted to a form of apartheid. When independence came to Kenya, the restrictions on African access to the city were immediately lifted. And that was entirely understandable and obviously the, the natural and the right thing to do. But of course what it meant was that suddenly there's an immense flood of population from the rural areas of Kenya into the city with the enormous problems that still remain in the city of Nairobi. So now today uh, you still have a divided city, a deeply divided city, a city that is no longer a colonial city but a post-colonial city, but in this post-colonial situation there is, there is a, an economic apartheid in which there's a, an extremely prosperous elite who in a sense have taken over the role that the British once had in the city and uh, at least 65% of the population living in the kind of conditions that are reflected in the pictures that we saw a few moments ago. One of the places that we we visited while we were there in Nairobi was the Railway Museum. And uh, it's a place that uh, is a very helpful introduction to the history of the city, charting the growth of the railway and then the development of Nairobi. And outside of the museum, parked on the railway lines, the sidings to the side, there are a couple of dozen huge steam engines 
that were the original engines that, that brought traffic up from the coast and then back down again. And when I looked at these engines, not, I'm not a, a, a particularly a steam engine freak, but I was uh, extremely interested in these particular in, uh, engines for one reason, and that is that I, I strongly suspected that I would discover that a large number of them would have been built in Glasgow. And of course that was the case. And I found that uh, probably half of them had been built in Springburn, in the great engine works in Springburn. Those uh, engine works, of course, are no more. They're now occupied by a vast Tesco superstore. And it was, for me, uh, an illustration of the indivisible nature of the urban world in which we're living. But I, I found here a, a historical, concrete link between the city in which I live and the city of Nairobi with all of its, its many problems. And I was reminded of some of the difficulties that were experienced in Glasgow in the 19th century and the way in which Glasgow, in, in, in the aftermath of the Industrial Revolution, experienced huge social problems and, and great divisions between people and, and a gap between those who benefited and profited from that revolution and large numbers of people who lived in conditions in the Gorbals and other parts of Glasgow that are not unlike what you now discover in the city of Nairobi. And so these, these cities are linked and the urban world in which we are living is, is an interconnected world. And the problems of Nairobi, of Delhi, of Sao Paulo in South America or any one of dozens of cities that we might mention are connected with each other as is, is a connected world. And in a world that is now for the first time in human history more than... 50% urban in terms of population. It is, it is clear, isn't it, that this issue of urbanization, what it means to be the people of God in a world that is becoming an extended city, and where urban values seem to permeate even beyond the city where rural conditions still exist, we have to ask ourselves, how do we be the people of God. What are the implications of this for our worship, for our church life, for our understanding of the gospel? And I want just to reflect uh, very briefly on a simple phrase that is in this wonderful story that we read uh, just a couple of moments ago. It's the phrase that comes toward the end of the story after Christ has appeared to these two disciples making their way to the village of Emmaus. Verse 33. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. They go back to the city. They go back to the urban centre from which, just a matter of a couple of hours earlier, they have fled. They have exited the city and left it behind. But something has happened in the revelation of the risen Christ that compels them to retrace their steps and they go back to Jerusalem. I want to notice uh, very briefly just three things concerning this statement. 
First is the fact that it reverses the retreat that has earlier taken place. There's not time to look at the story in detail, but these are two broken people. These are two people whose, whose dreams have been shattered. Uh, in the earlier part of the story, everything about the description of these two people on the Emmaus Road indicates their extreme despondency and depression. Their faces are downcast. Uh, their language indicates that they have lost faith. We had hoped. We had been filled with hope that the kingdom was coming and that the Christ, whom we recognized as a prophet, was going to change the world. We had hoped that. But that hope is shattered and broken. It lies in the past. The crucifixion, the, the death of Christ on the cross is, is etched deeply into their consciousness and, and blots out the possibility of hope. And so we find them saying earlier in the story, he was a prophet. And it's as so much else in the early part of the story, it's in the past tense. And, and it seems to me that what they're saying is we're, we're no longer sure that he was a prophet. It's not just that his life has been cut short prematurely by a tragic and terrible death and a humiliating execution. It is also that that death as a criminal now makes us wonder if he was a prophet after all. So these are two people in really grave crisis. These are people... Uh, who don't have any horizon in front of them. And so they retreat from the city. They leave the city behind. The city is the place of evil and wickedness, where Messiah Jesus has been crucified. And they make their way into the country. If you like, they make their way into the suburbs. And I think when we reflect on an urban world, the challenge of urbanization, when we look at it historically and when we look at the nature of the church in many places today, we would have to say that, that Christianity has often followed this path. It's often been essentially a rural religion. It's been more at home in the kind of rural parish context. And frequently it has found the urban challenge too difficult to face. If we ask a simple question, why do we meet at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning? Why not 9 o'clock? Why not 8 o'clock in the evening? The answer, of course, is that there's a historical reason. And 11 o'clock is a very convenient time for a farmer between the first milking and the second milking. And the tradition continues on, not necessarily because we've reflected on whether this is the ideal time in an urban context, but because that is the way it has always been. And in all sorts of ways, our inheritance of church, our understanding of church, reveals rural and suburban assumptions. And the tragedy is that when, when this kind of Christianity was taken through the missionary movement into Africa, 
it often went with those presuppositions. And I remember going to Nigeria and being told by some of my students in Nigeria, the early missionaries had always said, once you're converted, don't, don't go to the town. Avoid the town. Town is a place of danger and evil. If you go to the town, you're likely to lose your faith. Fortunately, they ignored the instruction and not only went to the town, but were absolutely brilliant at planting the church in the town. And so the massive growth of the African church has, has been largely in urban centres. Now, of course, sometimes we need to leave the city. Sometimes we need what we might call a strategic retreat. Sometimes we need the peace and the quietness and, and to renew our contact with the creation of God. The danger is that that becomes permanent. We come to regard that as the normative form of the Christian faith and of the Christian church, with the result that it seems that Christianity can only survive in the suburbs. It can only survive where there is wealth and prosperity and privilege. And large areas of the city are left relatively untouched by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Second thing to notice about this statement is that their return to the city is the result of seeing the risen Christ. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. Why? Because they have seen the Lord. Because they have had an epiphany. Because they have realised that the stranger who was there all the time, who accompanied them along that dark and gloomy road, was Christ. God has vindicated his Messiah. And having seen the Lord, they retrace their steps and return to the city. It's actually an extraordinary thing that they do. Because you remember that they have said to him in verse 28, verse 29, they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And, and one of the reasons why they urge him to stay with them, of course, is, is on, the, on the roads of ancient Palestine. As the sun is going down, there is great danger. But now, having seen Christ, they forget that. That is no longer a consideration. They don't think of their own safety. It seems to me they, they don't think of how they will gain access to Jerusalem in the dead of night. They've left it as suspect characters, people who are under suspicion because they've been associated with somebody executed as a criminal. But these things don't concern them. All that matters is that Christ is alive and the story of the risen Christ and their witness to having seen him must be told within the city. And so they make their way back to the city of Jerusalem. It's very often the case, isn't it, that when people have seen the Lord, they do things that appear to others to be slightly crazy. And very often people who come to faith in Christ, who really know Jesus Christ, 
set out on a pathway motivated by the desire to serve Christ and bear witness to him that may be profoundly misunderstood by others, including members of their family. And that's what faith does. That's what happens when we really see the Lord. To see the Lord is to be concerned to do his will, whatever that may involve. And to take the message of hope and salvation and forgiveness and deliverance to the heart of the city. To go where the challenge is greatest. To go into the city at its most difficult points and there bring hope through witness to the risen Christ. Some of you will know the name of Bob Holman, who was a professor of sociology in the University of Bath. And many, many years ago, Bob Holman said that the closer he came to Jesus Christ, the more uneasy he became about taking a salary for describing academically the condition of the poor. And the more he felt that Jesus was asking him to live with the poor and to identify with the poor. And so he resigned his professorship in Bath and he has spent many, many years living in Easter House in Glasgow where he's widely recognised as a genuine saint and where people who have perhaps not come to faith, who have not come to recognise the gospel, have seen in the way in which he has lived, a living reflection of the compassion and mercy and love and kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember soon after I arrived in Glasgow, buying a copy of The Big Issue from a seller in the streets of the city, and being profoundly moved when I opened this to see that, that there, was, there was my friend Bob Holman interviewed in The Big Issue. A vindication of his life and his ministry and his commitment to serve Christ among the poor. I mentioned this morning the statue of Thomas Guthrie just around the corner. Uh, if, if you've not looked at that statue, if you've not read what is on the, the three sides of that statue, I urge you to do so. To, to, to reflect on those who have set us an example and have gone back into the city, who have been willing, in obedience to Jesus Christ, following his call, to go into the tough and the hard places and to let the life of Christ and the love of God be seen in those contexts. And that brings me to the, the final thing that I want to share with you this evening concerning this statement. And that is that it's, it's a return to the city which involves a return to a future that lies entirely in the hands of God. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. What do I mean by this? Well, two things. First of all, when they get into Jerusalem, they discover that Christ had already been there. Verse 34. They found the eleven saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way 
and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke bread. I, I, I'm tempted to think that, that they might have been a bit peeved. They might have wanted to say, guys, this, this was our story. This is what we've come through the darkness to tell. But it's not their story alone. Christ doesn't belong to us individualistically. Witness to the risen Christ is a communal thing. And they find that the risen Jesus has gone before them. He's already there in the city. They don't take him back to the city. Christ in the power of his risen life has already begun his redeeming work in the very heart of Jerusalem. Many scholars of the New Testament have suggested that actually what we're reading in this story indicates the beginning of the urban nature of early Christianity. The early church in the Acts of the Apostles reflected very clearly in the writings of the Apostle Paul was not like later Christianity, essentially rural. The early church was essentially and fundamentally urban. And scholars suggest that, that this is where it begins, that Jesus appears in the city, because it's the city that he loves, and that he desires to redeem, and there to show his grace. But then, the final thing that I want to say this evening is this. In going back to the city, they went back to a future that was surprising in ways that they could never possibly have anticipated or imagined. What do I mean by that? Well, look at the end of the chapter, verse 53, the very last verse of Luke's Gospel. They stayed continually at the temple, praising God. And that suggests that what they might have thought was this, that in going back to the city... They were going back to the past. Things would continue as they had always been. Worshipping in the temple. Using the forms and the patterns of worship with which they and their fellow believers were familiar. They could not have imagined that the temple would disappear. They could not have anticipated at this stage the kind of changes that lay ahead. They could not have seen the sort of struggle that the Apostle Peter was to have in the Acts of the Apostles to come to terms with the living Christ and the kind of community that Christ would create that would break down the barriers between Jews and Gentiles. And I want to end this evening by asking whether we are ready for God's surprises, whether we are ready for God's newness, whether we are ready for the kind of church that God may be creating in this 21st century. Are we ready for God to do the kind of new thing that he delights to do? Are we ready to move with him and to move with the Spirit that our great urban centres might be impacted in a way that will bring real and permanent transformation 
But there might be real change as the result of the gospel. Are we ready for the church to change in order that it might become truly effective in bearing witness to the risen Christ? That we might see something of the new Jerusalem, the new city, the new world that we were reflecting on this morning, breaking into our existing cities and bringing hope and healing and forgiveness and deliverance. Let's pray.